Aren't you glad you came to church today? I know I'm glad you came to church today. Praise the Lord. I'm glad I came. I, I told the first service, I must have really needed to worship because I just got caught up and I was in that last song and I thought, oh, I got to go preach. I got I to, I got stuff I have to do here. So I'm really glad that you're here and uh, I'm also really glad that Russ and Cheryl are here and our worship team, Kaya and David and Allie, uh, that was like a Saturday afternoon decision that Michael was not going to be well enough to be here, and they stepped in, made some key changes, swapped out a song, had a great rehearsal. Thank you guys for leading us today. It was a real, real blessing. So yeah, give them a hand. Thank you. So last week I launched a new series titled Loving Like Jesus, and we're walking through the book of Matthew, and we're paying attention to what it looks like to love like Jesus. And we looked for our first week uh, at Jesus' earthly father, Joseph, in a message titled Loving Like Joseph. If you missed that message, I would really strongly encourage you uh, to go out to our website. Uh, It's available there with audio, or there's links to our YouTube page, our Facebook page, where you can watch the video. There was a video that preceded that first message uh, that got a lot of comments, and a lot of people uh, were really impacted by that. So if you missed that, I would strongly encourage you to go and to find it uh, on, our, on our YouTube page or our Facebook page and catch that. Our big idea last year, our bottom, uh, last year, last week, uh, our bottom line was that just because you have the right to do something, that doesn't necessarily mean it's the right thing to do. And we saw that very clearly in Joseph who had the right to file charges, to dismiss Mary and to tarnish her family name and maybe even lead to her stoning and death under the law at that time, and yet he foregoed his rights. And we see a picture of Jesus doing the same. We see a picture of our Heavenly Father doing the same. And it was an interesting thought, you know, as a pastor, sometimes you preach a message and you feel really good about that message, and then you're, you know, you're stepping out of the shower on Monday. You think, oh, I wish I would have said that. Because the whole idea of Christianity is that we get a new Lord. And when we get a new Lord... That means we forego our rights and we accept His Lordship in our lives. And that's the essence of following Jesus, is to forego our own rights. Whenever they come in conflict with our discipleship to Him, with following Him, we forego our rights. And so today we're going to take a next step and we're going to talk about loving our enemies. As we learn to love like Jesus, we're going to have to learn to love our enemies. And Jesus talked about this in the Sermon on the Mount. So we'll be looking at Matthew chapter 5. And if you want to turn in one of the pew Bibles here, we have those in the seats in front of you. You can grab one. Um, It's on page 1503. If you have a Bible or if you're joining us online, we're so glad you found us. You can turn to a Bible that you have at home. These will also be on the screen behind me. But before we get there, before we start reading through what is said here, I want you to take a moment and think about an enemy. Maybe it's a current enemy that you have. Maybe it's a past enemy that you have. Maybe it's somebody that hurt you deeply, that betrayed you, that took something from you. Maybe somebody that bullied you. Maybe you go all the way back to high school. Or maybe, just maybe, it's somebody that's hurting somebody you love. And I don't know about you, but like you can do a lot to me, and we're probably going to be okay. <laughs> you mess with my kids. You mess with my wife. We might have a harder time being okay again. We'll get there eventually. I have belief in that. I have confidence 
in Christ to reconcile that. However, I want you to think of an enemy, current or past, and let that emotion be the context as we walk into this. As we walk into the Sermon on the Mount, uh, you'll see it starts with the Beatitudes, and then there's this lengthy section in Matthew chapter 5. If you're looking at it in a red-letter version, it's red, all of 5, 6, and 7. This is one of the longest teachings of Jesus that's contained in Scripture. And verses 21 through 28 of Matthew chapter 5, there's a cycle that gets repeated where Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, and he states something that is scriptural, but he doesn't say it is written. And typically when Jesus is quoting Scripture, he'll say it is written. So he's talking more about the teaching. He's talking more about the oral tradition, which in some cases had gotten a little off base. And he's correcting a misinterpretation. In each case, you've heard that it was said, but I say to you. And he does this six times. And so we're going to look at the sixth one. The first five have to do with wonderful, easy to palate, or easily palatable topics like anger, lust. What else do we have? Divorce, oaths, which really has more to do with verbal manipulation. You know, swear to God. It's usually a trump card that we're trying to play in order to get somebody to trust us when we haven't earned trust. Or retaliation. So it's interesting when we get to this final section of loving our enemies, you better have made some progress in the other five first, or you're really going to struggle to love your enemies. If you're still dealing with hatred and anger and retaliation, loving your enemies is going to be a real challenge. And so this kind of underscores that progressive nature. And we talked a little bit about this last week, that as we grow in our relationship with Christ, as we incorporate more layers of, of studying His Word and of prayer and of regular worship and fellowship and, and spending time with others and serving and being on mission in this world, not my mission, but His mission, it creates this rich tapestry in our relationship with Him. And the same can be said here as we work on anger and lust and and verbal manipulation, divorce and retaliation, all of those things. It sort of culminates here. And you could say that loving your enemies is sort of the icing on the cake. He's basically saying it's not enough to just not kill them. It's not enough to just not anger them. It's not enough to not be angry at them. And it's not enough to not retaliate. We actually need to take the final step, and that's to love our enemy. So let's look at what this says. I'm going to read through verses 43 through 48, and then we'll kind of step through them one by one um, as we go. Here's what he says. He says, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes His Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, it's interesting when he quotes this, you have heard that it was said. The statements that he quotes, love your neighbor, is absolutely verbatim in the Old Testament. He quotes this elsewhere as part of the greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. We find that in Scripture. The actual scriptural command to hate your enemies doesn't occur in Scripture. You won't find it. 
in the Old Testament. It was an inference that was made that God hates evil, and so the enemies of God are evil, and so we should hate them. And it kind of missed the point that God loves all people and desires that none should perish. And so this is a new ethic. It's a new covenant. It's a new testament. It's, it's a new teaching that Jesus is bringing, and he's bringing it authoritatively. And so when he says, you have heard, he's correcting a misinterpretation. And so he starts with that, and then he really zeroes in. And he says very clearly in verse 44, I say to you, and what we know that they didn't necessarily know. Some of them were starting to figure it out. But what we know is that Jesus is God himself. Jesus is the word made flesh. Jesus is the full representation, the fullness of God in human flesh. And so when he says, but I say to you, he's saying, here's the real deal. Love your enemies. Love your enemies. And Sometimes you can kind of break down the words and you can kind of look at the Greek and, and you can say, oh, what it really means is this. But you can't do that here. It literally means love your enemies. The literal translation would be agape. That's the Greek word for self-sacrificing love, the unconditional love that God has for us. Agape, those who are hostile towards you. So he's not even just talking about passive enemies. He's talking about people that are actively hostile towards us. Love them. Agape them. Put them first. Actively seek their good. And pray for those who persecute you. Before we get to praying for those who persecute you, I want to make it really clear. Jesus is not telling us to like them. And this is good news because it's really hard to like your enemies. It's hard enough to love them. But Scripture never commands us to feel good things towards or to be fond towards people, it tells us to love them, to actively choose. Love is an act of the will. Like is an emotional response. And and what's unfortunate in our current culture is that love has become synonymous many times with really, really like. I've talked about this before, but you know, when I say I love pizza or I love riding my bike on the bike trail, what I mean is I really, really like those things. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's not saying really, really like your enemies. He's saying love them. Make a choice, an act of your will to treat them with positive regard and to desire their good. Then he says, and pray for those who persecute you. Now that word prayer is an interesting word. We have to understand what it means because I remember when I was discipling a young believer one time back in Casper and we got to this point and I said, you really need to make sure you're... He was really struggling with this guy at work. I said, you need to be praying for him. He said, oh, you darn right I'm praying for him. I'm praying for him to get a flat tire on the way to work. I'm praying for him to get hemorrhoids on a six-hour flight. I'm praying for him, Pastor Mark. I said, no, 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 time out. Time out. That's not the type of prayer we're talking about. We're not praying for his demise. We're praying for his good. And the Greek word that we translate as prayer is a combination of two words. The first means to exchange, and the second word means wishes. And so when we pray for our enemies, we exchange our fleshly wishes for our enemies, the flat tires and the hemorrhoids and everything else, for God's wishes, which are only good, which are only for their transformation, only for their coming into the kingdom of God. We exchange our fleshly wishes for God's perfect wishes. That's what it means to pray 
for those who persecute us. That's what it means to to lift them up to God and say, God, I'm struggling with this person. They're persecuting me. They're becoming an enemy of mine. They're opposing me in the things that I'm doing for your kingdom even. I need to exchange my wishes because my flesh doesn't want the best for them. But I know you do. So I want to exchange my wishes for your wishes. I want to exchange my will for your will. That's what it means to pray for those who persecute us. And so loving like Jesus means loving our enemies. And it means praying for those who are persecuting us. And Jesus never harbored bitterness or unforgiveness. In fact, the final words that he uttered, he said, forgive them, Father. They don't know what they're doing. And that's a really good first prayer to pray. When somebody's persecuting you, when somebody's becoming an enemy of yours, when you say, forgive them, Father, they don't know what they're doing. And forgive me, Father, I don't know what I'm doing sometimes. Jesus prayed that prayer for me when I was apart from Christ. I didn't know what I was doing. But when we pray that prayer, we exchange our will, our fleshly will, for God's perfect will. And His perfect will is that they would be forgiving, that they would come into the family of God. And so we can pray for God to forgive them as a step towards forgiving them ourselves. Because this is what God does for us, the song that we sang. He is rich in love. He is slow to anger. Over and over in the Old Testament, we're told in in the law, in the prophets, in the Psalms, that He is patient, that He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And Jesus' own words, some of those famous words, most often quoted words ever uttered, God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him would not perish but have eternal life. God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, to give us what we deserved, but to save the world through Him. It was a divine rescue mission. And that's important that we understand that, that Jesus came on a divine rescue mission. He was sent by the Father and He came as an obedient Son. And so when He says in the next phrase that you may become or that you may be sons and daughters, heirs of your Father in heaven in verse 45, He's saying you come into the family when you learn to love your enemies. When you learn to love your enemies, you are at home in the family of God. You are at home in the ways of God. See, the children of this world... They hate back. They fight back. They get angry back. They retaliate. That's the ways of the world. But God's saying, my kingdom, my family, it's different. It's a different kingdom. Jesus is saying, you need to learn how to love your enemies like I've learned how to love my enemies. And when we do that, when we love our enemies like our big brother Jesus and like our heavenly dad, we're at home in the family. We fit in in the family. And then in the next couple of verses, the second half of verse 45 and 46 and 47, we get a couple of good reasons why we're to do this. Jesus gives us two really good reasons that we can see in the examples that he gives here. And the first of those is that we love our enemies because God does. We see that in the back half of 45. He, God, causes his son, the son belongs to him. It's not outside of his sovereignty. God causes his son, the literal son, not the S-O-N son, his son to shine or to rise on the good and the evil. Both evil people and good people get the same son. Both the righteous and the unrighteous get the same reign. God provides for and blesses even those that oppose him. 
Even those that are shaking their fists at him or trying to kill his people or actively opposing his will being done in the world. God does this, and so we are to do this as well. We are to provide for and bless both the just and the unjust, even those that become enemies of God or enemies of ourselves. Now, the second reason that he gives, we see in verse 46 and 47, is that when we do this, when we love our enemies, it stands out. The world takes notice. People go, whoa, what is going on? Why are they loving their enemy instead of hating their enemy? See what he says? He said, basically, if you love those who love you, in verse 46, what reward will you get? Aren't even the tax collectors doing that? Like, what's different about people in the church and people as far from God as possible if we're all just hating our enemies and getting even? Or in verse 47, and if you greet only your brothers... What are you doing more than others? Don't even the pagans do that? You don't stand out. We're meant to stand out. We're just meant to shine like stars in heaven, Paul says in Philippians chapter 2. We're meant to stand out, to not be conformed to the patterns of this world, Paul says in Romans 12 too, but to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. If you're going to become a person who reflexively loves your enemies, it's going to take some mind renewal. You're going to have to be renewed from the patterns of this world and transformed into the ways of the kingdom. And, and so when he says this, and he gives these examples, he's saying, you guys, we, we're supposed to stand out. My followers shouldn't just blend in. Paul says at the end of Romans chapter 12, don't return evil for evil. Because what do you get when you return evil for evil? More evil. Does that accomplish God's purposes? Is that what we want in this broken and fallen world? Is it just a little more evil? No. He says, overcome evil by doing good. So we take the evil that comes at us and we return good for it. Now we've absorbed that evil. It's out of the way and we're putting good into the world. And if this was what 2.2 billion or 2.5 or however many billion Christians were doing, there'd be a whole lot of good going out into the world because there's a whole lot of evil coming at us. But if we can respond to that evil with good, then we're not adding to the evil. And so Jesus is saying, you know, watch me, watch how I do this. Because he did this, and it really stood out, and it really made a difference, and it started a movement that has turned the world on its head. And we can look at his own teachings. Just before the end, in John chapter 13, he tells his people, a new command I give you, love one another. And if we had any doubt what that looked like, he said, as I have loved you. Love one another as I have loved you. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's the measuring stick. He says, love one another as I have loved you, but he doesn't stop there. He says in the next verse, by this all men will know that you are my disciples, you are my followers, you're learning how to do it my way if you love one another, even your enemies, even your enemies, even those who oppose you. And so there's a big part of me that wishes the sermon ended right there. There's a big part of me that wishes the passage ended right there because that's hard enough, isn't it? And then he goes in verse 48 and he says, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And I'm like, well, that's it. (laughs) I'm out. I don't think I'm going to make it. I can't do that. I can't be perfect. And in uttering these words, in uttering verse 48, he's dealing a death blow to human effort earning us salvation. He's dealing a death blow to the do more, try harder, 
method of earning God's grace. And that's the point. We need grace. We need the unmerited favor of God in order to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. We need to be the recipients of what theologians have called the great exchange. You can read about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 where we're told that Jesus Christ, the one who knew no sin, who never sinned once, became sin on our behalf so that we could become the righteousness of God. You see the exchange there. He took our sin, our shame, our guilt, our unrighteousness, heaped it on Himself, nailed it to the cross, died, and then was rose again, rose again, conquered sin and death on our behalf so that when God looks at us as believers, when He looks at those who have made the great exchange, who have accepted Jesus Christ and His payment for the penalty of our sin, when we receive that... God doesn't see me and my sin and the horrible things that I've thought and said and done. He sees Jesus when He looks at me. And that should blow us away. And that should cause us to spend the rest of our lives letting people know and serving people in love, even our enemies. And what He's saying in this verse is even if you get to the point where there's no anger, there's no lust, No divorce or adultery. Nothing like that's happening. You're not taking oaths or taking oaths in vain. You're not retaliating. We're still going to fall short here in our own effort. In fact, Paul says so clearly in Romans chapter 3. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In our own effort, on our own, we will fail. Every single person who has come before and every single person who has come since will fail. We can't make it on our own. And so James Montgomery Boyce, a famous preacher, theologian, summarizes it this way. He gives us the solution. He says, if you are to reach the perfection which God requires, it must be as a result of His working for you and in you. That passage I mentioned in in Philippians chapter 2, where it says we're to shine like stars, it also says it is God who works in you to will and to act according to His good pleasure. So our our response is not do more, try harder. It's to surrender. It's to surrender our will. It's to surrender our lives. It's to surrender our decision-making process. It's to surrender completely to His care and control and allow His Spirit to be at work within us. To spend time in His Word, learning what His will is, and time in prayer, asking for the power to carry that out as Jesus and the Holy Spirit work within us. We surrender and we cooperate with that. David, King David in the Old Testament, he understood this. And so in Psalm 18, one of my favorite psalms of David, one of these just all-encompassing prayers of his is singing to God and thanksgiving and singing to God for his grace. He says in verse 30 and 32, as for God, his way is perfect. David understood that. God doesn't mess up. My way is not always perfect. Not in the literal sense and not in the figurative sense. God doesn't take any wrong turns. God doesn't say, oops, God doesn't have to circle around the block and go back because he forgot that thing again. His way is perfect. Morally, ethically, in every possible way, his way is perfect. And then he goes on to say in verse 32, it is God who arms me with strength and makes my way perfect. 
Who makes David's way perfect? Who makes my way perfect? Who makes your way perfect? It's God. We surrender to that. We, we get in step with the Spirit. That great passage talks about the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. If we are led by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Be guided by the Spirit. Then we'll be bearing the fruit of the Spirit, and the world will benefit. So David understood that. The writer of Hebrews understood that. Hebrews 10.14, really powerful verse. Because by one sacrifice, He, Jesus, has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. What a fascinating verse of Scripture, if you really think about it. Because the writer of Hebrews is saying that Jesus' sacrifice, when we accept that, when we participate in the great exchange, and we exchange our unrighteousness for His righteousness, He makes us perfect in that moment. But there's not a period. It says those who are being made holy. So when God looks at us, He now sees Jesus. And Jesus is perfect. So when He looks at us, He sees perfection, and yet we're still being made holy. There's progressive sanctification that follows the entire sanctification of God coming into our lives, us turning our will over to Him completely. He looks at us and He sees Jesus and we're perfect. And yet, we're being made perfect so that when everybody else looks at us, they see Jesus. You see how that works? That when we come to Christ, we're made perfect, but we're also still being made perfect. We're perfect in God's sight, and He's making us perfect in the sight of the world so that when they see us, they'll see Jesus and say, what is with that guy? How does he love like that? How does he love his enemies? And God gets glory for that. And you remember a few years ago when there was a church shooting down in Georgia, and it was a black church at the hands of a white shooter. And within a week, they came out and publicly forgave and prayed for this man and wished him well. And the world paid more attention to that because it was so countercultural. And it was such an example of loving your enemies. And there was total authenticity in it. There were no gimmicks. It was authentic. And that's what we're talking about. And so I have one final thought on why verse 48 is a part of this section. And it's that I believe that loving, forgiving, and praying for our enemies is one of the hardest but most Christ-like things we can do. If we're going to be made perfect, we'll see it when we start to love our enemies, when that becomes a reflexive action. And these are enemies that are close to us, and these are enemies that are far away. These are enemies in our own household, in our own marriage. Sometimes we get into an adversarial position, perhaps, or with, with family members, or with neighbors and co-workers, those that are close to us, but also those that are farthest away from us. We live in a culture that is pitting groups of people against each other on an alarming rate. And we have to fight against that and make sure that we still choose to love our enemies. That we love our enemies. Because it's one of the least natural things that we'll do apart from the Holy Spirit being at work within us. Our flesh is not going to lead us in this direction. And I shared a quote this week that says, We do not drift towards holiness. We don't drift naturally towards holiness. We drift away. And that's why we need to be tethered to the anchor of our soul. That's why we need to be in step with the Holy Spirit. We need to spend time on a daily basis bringing our mind, our thoughts, our will, our actions in line with Scripture. 
And here's the good news. When we circle back to loving our enemies, when we choose to do this, when we love our enemies, they stop being our enemies. Do you realize that? When we love our enemies, they stop being our enemies. That's our bottom line today. When we love our enemies like Jesus loved his enemies, they stop being our enemies. Jesus died without enemies. Do you realize that? Even though he had been crucified, whipped, beaten, nailed to a cross at the hands of sinful men, of his own people and of foreign people. Nobody's hands are clean in this. Yet he died without enemies because his last words were words of love, words of forgiveness. Forgive them, Father. They don't know what they're doing. And so Jesus died without enemies, and he calls us to die without enemies. And I believe to live without enemies. Because when we choose to love our enemies, they stop being our enemies. They start being objects of our love instead of objects of our anger and our hatred and our retaliation. And you might say, well, that's really good, Mark. You got me convinced. (laughs) How do I do it? It sounds really big and hard. And I wish I could give you three simple steps that you could start doing and have this one put behind you by lunch, but it's probably not going to work that way. This is going to take some real effort, but I do believe it's three steps, and we see them in this passage, and we see them in Jesus' life. First, you pray for them as he tells us to pray for them. Pray for them. Pray for them like Jesus prayed for them. Pray for their good. Pray for the heart to love them. Pray for the heart to see them as God sees them, as image bearers of God, as dearly loved children that he is longing to come home. Pray for them like Jesus did. And then forgive them. It's really hard to actively love somebody if you have not forgiven them. And forgiveness is hard. The deeper the offense, the more energy and the more time it may take to forgive them. Even when you make the decision to forgive, it may take some time before your heart follows that decision. And it may take some time before you can actively love them. And that's the third step. We pray for them like Jesus prayed for them. We forgive them like Jesus forgave them. And then we choose to actively love them like Jesus did. And it's interesting. You can think you've done all that. And then something can pop up. A memory can pop up. Seeing somebody's news on Facebook and if you're not rejoicing with them, (laughs) it's just an indication that Got a little work to do still. Got a little work to do. But when we start to treat them the way that we treat those that we love, and that's kind of what Jesus is saying in 46 and 47, we act as if we love them. We act like we do towards those that we love. And we greet them or, or, or present ourselves to them as we do to those we love. Then we'll be treating them the way God has treated us. We'll be treating them the way Jesus has treated us. We'll be loving our enemies. And we may find, as we do, that those feelings of hostility come down and they follow the good-natured action towards them. And we don't speak poorly of them and, and we don't look for ways to diminish them in the eyes of others and we don't look for ways to harm them. Even when we have opportunity, we seek to do well for them, to pray for them like Jesus did, forgive them like Jesus did, and actively love them like Jesus did. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we need your help in this. 
if we're going to be made perfect like you are perfect, if we're going to love like Jesus loved and forgive like Jesus forgave and pray for people like Jesus did, Lord, we're going to need your help. This is hard. It's one thing to stand on a stage and, and read your word and expound it and to encourage people to love their enemies. But at the end of the day, this can be really, really hard. There could be some deep, deep wounds, some deep, deep hurts that we may need some healing. And so we pray, Lord, that you would bring that healing through your spirit, that you would remind us who we are, that you would remind us that eternity is secure in you, that if we have come to you, if we have accepted your grace and your forgiveness, if we have confessed our sins, if we have turned over our will to your care and concern, then we can experience grace. We can be recipients of grace. Grace can bring healing. And we can learn to pray for others, to forgive others, to love others the way that you have. So help us in this, God. Help us to be willing to be made willing. To be willing to learn and to grow and to step into this. Maybe even with fear and trembling. And we pray, Lord, that at the end of the day, your kingdom would expand through our lives, that your will would be done in us and through us, and that the world would be a better place as a result. We love you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray.